This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. I am back after so many weeks away. It feels strange to be back in this seat, but I'm happy to be here because I am joined by two fantastic, not robots, Nick White. Hey. And Tia Vasilio. I really would like to know more about the robot thing. Okay, so long story short, uh, someone called me out for saying fantastic human beings like every single episode. And I was like, huh, I guess I didn't realize I did that. And I listened to the beginnings of like 10 episodes. I was like, oh, shit, I say that every single week. So I've been trying to change it up. <laughs> I thought that was on purpose. I, I it, it was, but I guess it's annoying. I don't know. I'm sorry also, I'm a human okay. being that observes patterns. <laughs> <laughs> sorry my life doesn't vary enough for you. Jeez. I'm, I'm joined this week by two incredible humanoids <laughs> i would really prefer the robot body actually if we just if we like had a choice can i just trade yes we we will get right on that in the i read comic books research center today uh in the t Vasiliu robotics department oh mike you um, like I'm, you're a computer guy get on that joined by nick white and uploaded digital interface Tia Vasiliu. <laughs> yeah Eventually, this podcast would just me press, be pressing like a series of uh, dubstep remix buttons, and it'll be simulating the two other people on it's the show. Mike Rappin I will be the only and two great entity. aimbots, <laughs> <laughs> who I have eventually discovered are actually capable of taking these people's jobs. We were talking earlier this week at work about like, are you a are you a cyborg if your robot parts aren't human shaped? Well, I thought the definition the right, between a isn't, robot... Isn't the whole idea that an android is shaped like a human? Right, but a, a cyborg... cyborg like, so you're like your most... Is a human like with... Human and robot? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This but is yeah. the I yeah. Like yeah. Robots podcast. Yeah, this is serious now. This is... Uh... <laughs> uh, see, this is the biggest debate when we had this, like, destroy the cyborg, and the question was, who is the cyborg that yeah. we're destroying? And I kept saying, it's all of us. Um, and then I would get a lot of silence, and we would move on. So um, let me ask the question I ask every week on this show. <laughs> oh, how have you been? How have you both been? How have comic books been? Let's start with Tia. Um, I am in a lot of pain, and that's why I want a robot body. I think that I might actually develop some sort of pyrokinesis because my body oh, feels no. like it's on fire right now. <laughs> I just am okay. not doing great. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, I have read some comics, though. Those are good. Such as? What have you been reading? I mean, I've listened to what you've been reading for the last couple weeks, but um, what have you been reading recently outside of that stuff? So, speaking of being on fire, I read Redlands <laughs> number two <laughs> <laughs> by Jordi Belair and uh, Vanessa Del Rey and Clayton Coles. We did determine mm-hmm. that's the correct pronunciation, yes? Yes, Based yes. on Twitter research? Okay. Via pinned tweet on his Twitter account. Unless it's like some like nth level internet trolling, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this was just such a breakout series for me. And number one, it's about these witches and, in this small town in Florida. And at first you're like, are they being persecuted by these bigots in this town? But then in the second issue, you're like, mm, maybe the witches are also bad. And I <laughs> love books like that where just everyone is bad yeah yeah <laughs> um and then in the back and so there's like this serial killer who i guess is stalking them somehow and 
is committing these murders. And then in the back of the book, there's these like blood Rothgos that I guess those serial killer made. They're great. I just, I love it. Yeah. I love that bonus content. Please, (laughs) please see our recent issue on back matter. Anyway. So Redlands number two, get on this book. Also, I think my favorite cover is every time like so far it's two for two. Oh yeah. It's so such beautiful covers just by themselves. They totally draw your eye in a very scary way. I mean, also very gory. Gory and beautiful in the sense that, like, Hannibal is gory and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know? Yes. Okay. They remind me a lot of Harrow County and sort of the general feeling. Oh, uh, yeah, Harrow County covers comparison. in terms of the yeah. feeling they elicit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Very fine art sort of, which, ugh, I hate that word, but, you know. As I mean. someone <laughs> who was just in Paris and went to the Louvre, it reminded oh boy, here me we go. so much of all <laughs> of the <laughs> things that I credentials. saw. Goes the to one museum thing, the only thing these covers are missing are Jesus, apparently. So, and someone's exposed breasts. It's, yeah. Possibly, well, oh boy, I read comic oh, books. If you get into there's religious a lot of, commentary, there's a lot of exposed breasts in the interiors. If that helps, yes. Oh it wow, helps. that okay. that adds more of the uh, Renaissance. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Tia, please move on. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, moving on to robots and things of that sort, um, people with robot body parts. Dr. Afra number 12. Woo! Woo! <laughs> this is, uh, is it a spoiler to say that Vader's back? Because that's literally the solicit text, and I was I like, think wow. I mean, canon, <laughs> canon would dictate that such might such might be a, a, a consequence of things, so that's, no, I don't consider that. Remember when they announced Vader's Afra, d- like, Two seconds after the last Vader book was out, and everyone was like, "Oh God, is Afra dead?" And then, like five seconds later, they're like, "Surprise! Doctor Afra's getting her own book." And we're like, "Oh, I guess <laughs> <Right>. not." Surprise! <laughs> Star Wars is incapable of killing its extended <laughs> characters too. <laughs> yeah. But like, I'm glad they didn't because Afra's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is kind of the. Uh, is this the conclusion of the story arc where she was selling the the uh, Jedi consciousness in the crystal that oh boy i'm so far behind on this book i i only read the first volume it it's still unclear to me if it's a real jedi consciousness or or what because like it seems like luke didn't really believe her i don't know what happened with her and luke things happened and like (laughs) so (laughs) that was a long time ago i don't know anyway she is you know in a little bit of a tough spot because her murder droids are like you know tired of being told what to do and so they've orchestrated this whole thing to kind of release the um, really angry Jedi consciousness robot guy. And then Vader shows up and I'm pretty sure they're going to kiss by they. I mean, <laughs> Vader and the <laughs> robot Jedi or they're going to mm-hmm. kill each other. Maybe a little bit of both. Who can say? Well, I'm excited regardless. Right. I also read the conclusion of four kids walk into a bank. Woo. I really excited about that book. Oh my god! All right, so first of all, this is like not fucking around in any way, shape, or form. Oh, I yeah. cannot believe where they went with this. I yeah, cannot like, believe it. No spoilers, because really, people gotta read this goddamn. Oh my book. god! And you know, this we can talk more about this later when we get into the topic. But I love that on the title page, the artist is credited first, and then mm-hmm. the flatter, and then the letterer. And they even credit the person who does the wallpaper design. The writer, Matthew Rosenberg, is credited last. So we have yeah. Tyler Boss on art and design. 
we have Claire DeZuti on flatting, which guys, flatting is so important and like no one ever gives them any credit. I love that they put her in this book. Mm -hmm. Thomas Maurer on lettering. The lettering in this book is also fantastic and we'll talk more about that later. Wallpaper design by Courtney Menard. I just, I'm so happy to see everyone getting their name in the book, you know? Totally. And then finally I read Runaways number one and I like basically cried through the whole thing. Oh my goodness. Yeah, don't even get me started on that. I read that right before the show and I was like, why did I do that to myself? Rainbow Roll with Chris Anka on art and uh, Matthew Wilson doing the colors. So you know that it's just going to be the most like gorgeous, sexy book ever. Except this first issue actually just was really sad. And it was like, I don't know. So Nico... um, her power with her staff, like she can't use a spell more than once. Yeah. And I mean, just think about how stressful that would be if you're like in a situation and there, someone's like, I need this to happen right now. And you have to like think of every spell you've ever done. Cause if you do a repeat, it gets mad at you. And so she's in a situation where someone she cares about very much is really badly hurt and she needs to help them and she doesn't know what to do because she's done these spells a million times. And, you know, the, the, the pacing of this issue and the way that they, they really get you into the, like the intensity and the helplessness that you just feel so scared. And it's, yeah, it was really effective. Yeah. As, as someone who read the, the original like run this, like, this hurt in ways that I forgot about. Oh yeah. 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 You, I, I was talking um, on another show about how, like, I like how you have to kind of maybe go back and read the original. Like this book assumes, you know who they are. Oh yeah. Marvel's not even messing around with this book. I really like picking that. Up. Yeah. Yeah. There was a real you- um, moment of schadenfreude when Jordan picked that up and he looked real happy and he was really ready to take it home. And then I was like, Jordan, have you read any of the other runaway books? He's like, no, I'm like, oh, well, no. <laughs> uh, you're supposed to. So now I get to gatekeep. <laughs> oh, God. No, uh, just we're kidding. just going to skip but, Nick. Uh, we're going to skip Nick this week. Yeah. Who's yeah. Jordan? <laughs> uh, he's, he's a friend of mine. We, uh, us- we frequently go and get our comic books together. And uh, he was really excited to get that book. And I was like, I've been told by multiple people you need to read the other ones. And Jordan's a relatively nonplussed person. so he. Jordan, if you're listening, I'll be your new friend. Yeah. <laughs> I won't be mean to you like Nick is. <laughs> so I, I just want to point out, it's been 128 episodes, and Nick has talked about Jordan on many episodes, and he no might one's not be called real. him out on it. Yeah. And <laughs> it, I just think it's funny that it's taken us 128 episodes for someone to go, who is Jordan? Yeah. <laughs> Let's look into this. <laughs> if is only Jordan slowly real? the facade crumbles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jordan, if you're real, I'm your new friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to create a new personality. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, it's basically Diane from Twin Peaks, so everyone can appreciate that. Uh, I, I see. I've never I seen see. Twin Peaks. Yeah, neither have I. So you're zero yeah, for zero yeah. so far today, Nick. Yeah, I know. Hitting it out of the park. <laughs> Tia, did you read anything else this week? Um, That's pretty much it. We should probably move on. Okay, Nick, what about you? Um, <laughs> what, what have you been reading? How when I'm not been? telling people to put comic books back on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, I read a few books. Obviously, as I just said, things have been busy. Recently went and picked up my books yesterday, uh, met Kate and uh, Jordan and got our comics in GR and then um, sat down and we had dinner together and I ex- attempted to explain the Adpocalypse to Kate. And once again, I got the uh, I'm not really on YouTube that much uh, speech, which is fine because 
there are pretty good reasons to not be on there all the time uh, as well. Oh, the, so, you're talking about the whole ad removal stuff from various videos and from a couple yeah, bunch of different Yeah, demonetization, channels? the whole demo, uh, ad demonetization thing on YouTube. It's, gotcha. it's a fascinating thing. Uh, people should read up on that. It's interesting. But I did read some things. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to say that I, I performed a, a public service. Uh, Danny uh, came to me a few weeks ago uh, and tweeted and asked if... Um, if I had read Divinity Zero, and I said no, because I don't read books until about three to four months after they come out, so I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he was wondering if it was a good jumping-on point for Valiant, because one of Valiant's favorite things is saying that every single issue is a great jumping-on point, and they're not, but we won't get started on that, at least not too right. much. Uh, this right. is not a good jumping-on point. It totally is not. I know a lot of people are looking at this, and Valiant's saying it's fantastic for such, but it is a terrible jumping on point it's a great refresher it's fantastic if you read some valiant books but not all valiant books and you want to sort of be caught up to speed on where all of the different runs have recently wrapped and sort of the repercussions of those and, and the fallout uh, especially those surrounding divinity 3 so mm -hmm. yeah if you want to get on board with valiant not a great book if you sort of want to know where things have gone since divinity 3 it's great for that. It's a fantastic book by Matt Kent. Uh, Renato Guedes uh, does the art, and he also did the art on Bloodshot Reborn Zero, uh, as well as Eternal Warrior Awakening, and I can honestly say this is probably um, the, his best work of the three. Um, yeah, so don't, don't get me started on this whole thing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm starting a, uh, a uh, political action committee against this whole jumping on thing. Uh, it's called <laughs> CAPES. Uh, that's Citizens Against Proclaimed Entry Stories. So uh, this is You've a given this way too much thought. Yeah. I'm, I'm you know? so happy right now. Danny, look what you've done. These We're are the just, things uh, that I choose to <laughs> care <you> about. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, which uh, after that one, I was like, you know what? I'm a comedian. We can roll with this. So I also came up with my other um, uh, political action committee for event books that do shit, which is souls urging for further event repercussions, a.k.a. suffer. So these are two groups that you can join <laughs> in the future if you uh, really um, vehemently believe in one of those uh, two causes or both. So um, <laughs> We'll have t-shirts printed up uh, by the end of the week, everyone. But yeah, TLDR, uh, <laughs> Danny. Um, I, I mean, I guess you already have the book, I think, so read it, but you might not find it that enlightening or helpful. Um, the recent one-shot, which I think is called Rye Discovers the Valiant Universe, or it's like Rye in the Valiant Universe. It's written by Rafer Roberts, art by Francis Portella, I think. That does a much better job. Still not a perfect job, but a much better job. So there's that. Um, I read Black Hammer 10. Yes, I'm a few issues behind. Um, I really like that with this book, Jeff Lemire has understood that with a team book, one of the things you really need to pay attention to is you don't add too many more characters without finding ways to, um, quote unquote, uh, subtract other characters from the book, uh, so that we don't have too many people to follow. And I think he's kept a really good balance with that. Um, in a way, this book has followed Southern Bastard's, uh, Bastard's arc trajectory, which is following arc one, arc two just turns into a huge um, prologue arc, um, mm -hmm. very much character study developed, and with maybe like 10 to 15% of the issues sort of 
um, taking place in modern day and at least having a little bit of a forward trajectory on the book. Um, and much like Southern Bastards, it actually works. A lot of times this whole prologue arc is like, oh my god, here we go, six issues of like backstory. Ugh, I don't know if I can put up with this, but sometimes if it's written really well and it's actually interesting and you know that the character is, the, sorry, the creator is really setting a quality um, foundation, you don't mind as much. And, and that's how I feel about um, um, Black Hammer, which uh, interestingly enough, you want to talk about comics getting mentioned by, you know, entertainment bigwigs. I know that M. Night Shyamalan was actually just talking about Black Hammer, um, I think on Twitter and also the people that were at the comic shop where he bought it were, you know, tweeting about it and, and how he really huh. enjoyed the book. So, um, <clears throat> celebrities are, are like normal people, too. Uh, they read things, <laughs> they're literate, and sometimes they enjoy them. Well, except that his movie that... What was the movie that he just did that was so... Splice mi- or Slice or... or split. split. The Split. split. Yeah, I'm it sorry. Was so it was so misogynist. I actually, like, probably raged stroked and blacked out for half of it oh wow so please keep him away from black hammer because i don't know if i want him putting his grubby little woman hating hands all over that (laughs) yeah he he is short um so little works uh Okay, well, uh, new on I read comic books, sometimes we like things, and sometimes people, we don't like those things too, and internal turmoil happens because of it. So, yes. <laughs> I also read XO6. Uh, this is, of course, the sixth issue of the new XO Man of War run by Matt Kent. This arc is being drawn by Doug Brathwaite. The whole, like, Flash Gordon space pulp thing is starting to run just a little, just a little thin for me. I think we're going to get a real um, quantum shift in this book soon anyway. Uh, Arik of Dacia's armor seems to be really striking out on its own. You know, it used to sort of just, like, sit in that little ball and, like, talk to him or whatever. But, like, now that that shit ain't playing around anymore. Like, it's hovering around all over the goddamn place, like, as a fully formed armor suit, like, with him just not there. So it's just faceless armor. That's basically, you know, basically telling Arik, you know, you don't tell me what to do, Dad. You're not in charge. It's uh, it's getting really like Hal nine thousand almost like oh it's worse than that he's yeah. like it's like a you know fifteen year old teenager that doesn't want to listen to curfew like that's what this armor is verging <laughs> on now um, but it really made me think about the whole um, design of this book and and I think you know this is something we can talk about later uh, maybe a little but it's interesting how Valiant's been renaming a lot of their books when they do a new arc. So, like, for example, with, like, Marvel, you know, you have 500 different versions of Squirrel Girl, and so you have to be like, oh, this is incredible Squirrel Girl, or no, this is Amazing Spider-Man versus, you know, super interesting Spider-Man, all new, all different Spider-Man. And then people go, well, what does that mean, or when was that run? And so you have to give, like, a year or whatever. So you have, like, Spider-Man 2017, Spider-Man 2015, whatever. And Valiant has sort of circumvented that by kind of coming up with new permutations or combinations for its book's titles. So Exo Man of War is now just like Exo. Archer and Armstrong just became A&A. Um, Ninjak is now going to be Ninja K, I think, next month, even though that actually makes a lot of sense because 
you know, it's much like James Bond, Ninjak is sort of a role, and it gets passed down, and this book is actually going to highlight the other, like, Ninja A and Ninja B and all that, so it's gotcha. kind of interesting that they do that. I'm Ninja. of a mixed mind. <laughs> yeah, oh, Ninja. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ninja. Ninja, ah. Uh. Yeah, so <laughs> it's interesting. I was just thinking yesterday, I was like, does this work or does this not work? So um, I guess something to think about. It's certainly what I choose to spend my available brain power on. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sad, as Trump would say. Uh, sad uh, exclamation point, I guess. Um, great. Oh, boy. Political commentary. It's it's going to happen. Uh, finally, I read True Volume 5. I love this book. I love this book. I love this book so much. Um, everyone needs just a, a wild and zany, just absolutely insane book that they read and this book is just so imaginative it's so crazy it's world building in the weirdest ways um this volume was absolutely insane uh tony chu gets kidnapped by this guy who um is deciding that he's decided that it's a good idea that he wants to tell a story <laughs> he wants to write a non-fiction book about baseball players sexual exploits i'm not making this up yeah and okay yeah. but that was literally a plot point in the show switched at birth was it was it really it really was and so he he <laughs> digs up all of these exhumed base the all of these he exhumes all of these baseball players bodies and he has tony eat them so he can learn about their sexual past because of course tony when he eats anything he learns its history and so <laughs> that's not how it happened in switch it's, yeah, i was I gonna say not. i have the feeling there's a point where these two stories diverge yeah it's so weird and i then wonder the if time, john layman was like making fun of switched at birth or like if this is just some <laughs> wild coincidence yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh sick burn um what is that on, like Fox Family or whatever? Oh um, God, no! It's the one that changed names in the Shadow well, Hunter That is the one. On ABC there. Family yeah. is now. Yeah. Oh, what is it called now? Freeform. Yes. Freeform. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Tia. That's it. That's how you know it's good. Um, could you imagine what we could accomplish if we used this brain power for like other for things? Evil? Anything other than yeah, <laughs> literally. Say, Tia, you don't need else. to get that picky. It's like everything else. <laughs> literally anything else yeah um yeah. and and the, one of my favorite things with this book is that they keep finding all of these characters have weird food derived powers someone can eat the food and give you the chemical breakdown tony can can eat the food and and then he um you know he learns the past and the history of it so that's why he's such a great detective um but we have a new character who god what is his ability it's it's like a Shokau, um, a, a Coco Scalpere, which of course, if you know your Latin, you know what they're getting at there. And his ability is to create anything like a fully functioning articulated machine out of chocolate. So he can yes. build anything out of chocolate. And he builds yeah. guns because he's an arms dealer. And then he, of course, decides what would be better than just chocolate firearms. And, of course, the answer is laser-fueled chocolate firearms. <laughs> <laughs> Why yeah. isn't everyone reading this book? This is just, yeah. it's just I mean, so it's been insane. coming out for, like, eight years. I mean, it's, it's all out there. Everyone well, should go out there and now, read right? that book. Yeah, it is finished now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Just... 
I mean, and that's a big pro. If you were like, gosh, I don't want to read a book. And we all know these people. My dad's the same way with, like, books. Like, I, I gave him volume one of The Fade Out, and he's like, where's volume two? And I'm like, not out for a few months. Well, not interested. Okay. So, for those people, this book is done. And there's a lot of it. So, oh, yeah. there you go. Read this book. I love it, love it, love it. It's fantastic. Uh, Mike and Xander both completely right in terms of this being just, uh, it's 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 a tough book to explain to people but it's massively enjoyable so that's what i've been reading cool uh (laughs) i've been gone for three weeks so i read so many comic books it's like i have the letters literally falling out of my ears um i can quickly go through some of them but i i did read all of the matt fraction david aha uh hawkeye while i was traveling oh wow god that book is so good for the first time no, no, no. I reread it, I should oh, say. I, was I reread say, it yeah. for like the fourth time. Um, just because I wanted to refresh myself because I bought all the subsequent Hawkeye volumes that came out because I wanted to catch up to read the Kate Bishop series that's coming out. And uh, so I read all of that and it's fantastic. Um, I really, we talk about that on every single episode of the show, so I don't need to go into that. You should just go read it. Um, but as for recent stuff, um, I read Generation X number six by Christina Strain. Um, I put this little heart emoji because she is my favorite comic book writer right now in terms of the X-Men. She's kicking so much ass on this book. Um, there is a fun moment between, I think it's X-Men Gold and this book, or no, Iceman, sorry, between Iceman and this book, uh, where Quentin Quire is asking out, uh, I can't remember, uh, ID, um, to go for sushi, and then in the other book, they have the same conversation. I love that just little parallel thing. I don't know what else to say about Generation X other than it's it's teen drama at its best, plus it's X-Men, and I love it. Um, <laughs> I also read Strong Female Protagonist Book 1 by Molly Osterang and Brennan Lee Mulligan. Uh, I grabbed this in a sale because I, I really liked just the cover art of it, and it was on Super Duper Sale. And I did not expect this to be a book about superheroes, and it totally becomes that, while also making commentary, like very interesting commentary about how superheroes don't actually help people by fighting, and how they can use their powers for actual productive real-world good. Um, and there are some people out there who don't like this book because they feel like it's it's too... I don't, even, I don't know, like... Somebody called it feminist garbage on a website, and I was like, I did not get that at fucking all. Uh, so... This book is fantastic. It's a webcomic. It's still coming out, so it's like an ongoing series, but if you want, you can go grab the volume. I highly recommend it. The art is very beautiful. It's in black and white for the first, quote, four issues, but by four issues, they just mean 220 pages, so it's a lot of content in one book, and it's it's very cheap online and digital, Um, or you can go read it all online for free, I think, at strongfemaleprotagonist.com. Fantastic book. I also read Destiny New York, Volume 1, which is a book that I backed on Kickstarter a long, long time ago. Um, volume 2 is currently being Kickstarted. I think they're, they just reached their goal earlier this last week. Um, I picked this up, or I backed it, because I remember Kieran Gillen tweeted it and said it looked really good, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I, <laughs> I backed it, and I, I never actually read it until I saw the second volume was coming out. So I read it this weekend, or over the last week, um, and... It's this book is very 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 good, um, in so many ways. It's 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 a very diverse book. It takes the I, I apparently I'm obsessed with witch comic books because it's all about like witches. Um, <laughs> I blame Tia completely for this. I uh, accept full responsibility. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's full of, like a lot of multi dimensional characters. It's all like 
the majority of people in this book are women, um, and I really was just impressed by how they tackled some of the problems and character relationships in this story. I've never seen some of the, I don't know some of the aspects and some of the just approaches were just so very interesting to me. I was very impressed. I could not stop reading it. Like I basically had to pee at the beginning of the book, and I didn't stop reading the book to go to the bathroom. It's one of those types of things uh-huh. where you just have to read it. <laughs> Um, so, you know, get Great a UTI, quote, read Destiny New York. Um, <laughs> that's the pull quote. Are you um, looking to give yourself a kidney infection if we got a yeah, book exactly. for you? Um, no, I, I really, though, if, if I think if you're looking for an interesting, diverse book that has some supernatural elements that isn't pure in-your-face fantasy with elves and dwarves or whatever, but has just like a, a less goofy magic feel than Harry Potter I, Destiny in New York totally works. Honestly, go back this on Kickstarter. You can get both volumes for 20 bucks right now on their Kickstarter. I cannot express how fantastic this book was. I, I don't know how to describe it. Like, I tried to write a description, but it's, it's very, very cool. Um, and I'm, I know that their Kickstarter does a way better job of explaining it. So just go check that out. It'll be in the show notes. I also read <laughs> Sunstone Volume 1 uh, oh by Stefan Sajic. And... Uh, this is a very sexy book. What a fun, sexy time for you, yeah. Ex- exactly. Hey, uh, it, it's it's a very interesting book because it's it's very focused on um, BDSM and like a, a sexual relationship between two women um, that basically is a thing that exists as them saying, we both have needs, we're not going to do anything more than just fulfill these needs, and then we will part. Um, and then the romance of the story starts, which is really fun and, and an interesting way to look at how people interact with each other. Um, this book has a lot of praise. I mean, Sajik's art is top-notch. I think if you see it, you ulti- you immediately recognize it as his work. Um, he did some stuff on Rat Queens. He did Witchblade for the longest time, and he did some stuff with The Darkness um, all over Aquaman. at Top Cow. And now he's on Aquaman currently. And Sunstone was this book that he started as kind of like a fun... I want to do something independent than my like actual top cow work. And so he created an alias online and started creating these just random strips that people got really attached to. And they're really curious about the story behind these strips. So he turned those just kind of fetishy. Is this the images. one where a bunch, like some scenes, the, um, like the outline of the panel will be very florid and decorated and yes yeah, it's like ropes yeah. and yeah it's it's really beautiful and i don't think that the book over sexualizes the the women in the story in in a, in a way um and i i don't know how to properly describe it because i just don't have the vocabulary to but i was really impressed with how well the romance worked for someone who doesn't read romance i was very pulled into the story uh, and the sexual part of it was like the get that out of my face i want to actually hear about how these two women like each other a lot well no uh, <laughs> i mean i think that there's a way that you can tell that kind of story and the difference is that for the reader like you can tell when the sex scenes are for you or versus when they're for the characters right you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i think that in volume one there's some kind of goofy dialogue that I was kind of like, but I think that's like the romance side of things. I don't read a lot of romance stories, so maybe that's just like you kind of take a little bit of cheese with your cake. Um, And yeah, I really really liked it. I I have all five volumes because I purchased them in a sale and I was like, sure, why not? And I really like his art. I wanted to support the guy. I'm totally going to read the rest of this book. Uh, Finally, uh, Fonte Bukowski Volume 2 by Noah Vinskyver. I read this book. I 
read volume one, I think a year and a half ago. Paul came and visited. I picked it up on a whim at a bookshop that we went to. And this book was so funny. I was bursting out laughing, like walking around my apartment going, oh my God, the jokes in this book hit so hard. Um, for those who haven't heard of Fonte Bukowski at all, um, Noah Vinskyver is a creator at Fantagraphics, and he started writing this book about this guy who's determined to be the best writer, and he's going to live off of mom and dad's money, and he's going to make it, and every, he's the best writer that's out there. He's going to work for HarperCollins. He's going to write for all these different publishers. Um, but he's just pathetic, and he, he embodies all of the bad things about creative types who think they have it all or know everything. Um and, you know, go to the limits to try to emulate all their favorite writers out there. Like this guy, Fonte Bukowski, that's not his actual name. Of course. Uh, he, he made this name up because he wanted to sound like one of the great writers. Um, and so, like, all the pretentious bullshit of that is essentially this book. It's a huge satire piece. And the first one was great. I loved it. The second one is bigger and longer and has way more humor packed into it. Noah Van Skyver writes himself into it about how he's a piece of shit cartoonist. And uh, <laughs> I really enjoy that, the commentary on, on just all of these creative types because I don't see that very often. Um, so very good book. Fonte uh, Bukowski one, I believe is part of the I read comic book summer reading list. So if you like book one, I highly recommend picking up book two. And that's what I read. Um, <laughs> now that we're, we're already way past all the time, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, what we're excited for this upcoming week. Comic books come out on September 20th. So Nick, let's start with you. What are you excited for this upcoming week? Sure. Um, I'm really pumped for Bloodshot Salvation number one. Uh, Jeff Lemire has now been writing Bloodshot in, in some capacity or another since he uh, co-wrote The Valiant, which I think was December of 14, maybe even. So he's been doing this a long time. Um, uh, this arc is going to be um, a sort of a multi-part story, uh, half of it taking place in the present and half of it taking place eight years in the future. Um, in the present, it's going to deal with what Jeff Lemire told us we were going to get several months ago, which is that Bloodshot is going to fight Nazis. I was like, okay, sounds good. Um, I mean, this book has a lot of How timely. violence. <laughs> so um, it's also a meditation on violence at times. It is Jeff Lemire. It's not... Rob Liefeld or uh, any other um, I'm kidding there are obviously other people that do a lot of violent stuff too sure um, Mark Miller um, shout out and um, <laughs> God I uh, love him <laughs> one thing one thing I left out this week is I've read like more crossed issues than anyone should ever read oh, in a like Tia, lifetime are you what, okay like an arc <laughs> and yeah. so I, oh my goodness <laughs> I feel like uh, I need Comixology to buy you, like, has like an auto little pop up that after like five issues of crossed, it wants to just check in with you. Are you, you know? okay? How are you doing, bud? Uh, so yeah, but yeah, no, I know I feel you on the like, oh, this creator, I I almost didn't want to know you could be this depraved. Right. <laughs> you got curious to see what what size Spurrier was doing on crossed, right? Uh, anyways, oh, anyways, uh, sorry we'll do, to we'll, interrupt. I'm sorry. Uh, totally. Okay. No, 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 you're totally right. Um, but it's it's interesting because it goes back to Bloodshot's girlfriend, Magic, and apparently her family is a whole bunch of white supremacists, apparently, and they want their daughter back. Oh. And I was like, well, is this coming out of left field? Is this like some deus ex machina bullshit, Jeff Lemire? And so, of course, because, again, let's go back to this is how I spend my time, this is how I spend my brain power, I went back to Magic's first appearance in Bloodshot Reborn 4? 
mm-hmm. where um, he um, shows up when her boyfriend goes crazy because the nanites take control and he tries to mass murder people and she ends up killing him. And sure enough, Comic you know, books. he's talking about like wanting to, to purge things and, you know, things, you know, so-and-so will rise up again and he wants to cleanse the earth and there are um, several symbols of the uh, Confederacy that are featured prominently within that scene. Um, and I don't want to get into the mess of what is a symbol for what and what represents what, because that's a whole other mess. But obviously, if you want to lightly connect the dots there, the bottom line is Jeff Lemire did actually sow the seeds over a year or two ago for the idea that Magic's uh, family and friends may be a little bit uh, participating in some questionable extracurriculars, I guess you could say. They're so, Nazis. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. In, in some capacity, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was impressed that I... Jeff Lemire, go ahead. He's doing the work. What can you say? Uh, and then the eight years in the future is following his daughter, who uh, inherits his powers, and her name is Jessie, and she is being chased by this you know, a group that I don't know if they want to experiment with her or if they want to figure out if they just want her dead, but it's called Omen. Um, So, of course, there are a lot of questions. A lot of people have read into this that this means Bloodshot's going to die at some point because generally the nanites don't leave your body unless you're deceased. So a lot of questions. Looks like a multi-part narrative. The art looks fantastic uh, from Louis LaRosa and Miko Suwayan. Very excited for this. Cool. Tia, what about you? I'm really excited for Mirror Number 8 by Hue Lim and Emma Rios. This book is just so gorgeous. I don't get why everyone isn't reading it and just like transcending to a new plane of existence <laughs> because that's how beautiful it is. And uh, so the there were kind of t- in the first story arc, it took place on this colony and there were these like sentient animals and and the people there were trying to kind of harness this particular kind of magic and then when that Mm -hmm. story arc ended we went to this other story arc that was also kind of looking at magic and the nature of of being and stuff like that and now they're converging the the survivors of this colony are going to come back to the synchronia and now they have to kind of figure out where they fit in there um, I don't know. I, I got to meet Emma Rios at Rose City Comic Con last weekend and so chat cool. with her a little bit. And she she just is such a thoughtful artist and creator. And, you know, I mean, I don't like necessarily put a lot of primacy on the, the like author or the artist's intentions. But it is really nice to know that the creator is putting into the book exactly what I'm getting out of it. That just to me means that the book is really well done. That's awesome. I need to, I need to read this book. I feel like I'm doing a disservice to comics by not reading it. It's true. You really are. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Rappin, comic books, new shame. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's really beautiful. And since you have, since you're an art historian now, because you went to the Louvre, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 What a dork. <laughs> God. Yeah. Mike Rappin stares longingly at a painting for five minutes. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. That's what I did. Um, this one's good, too. <laughs> wow, this whole room is full of good paintings, guys. <laughs> um, 
I bet your mom's real proud. (laughs) So, uh, for me this week, uh, I'm super excited for Bitch Planet triple feature number four. That's Uh, my new graphic novel, Mike Rapp, an art historian. (laughs) (laughs) Looking looking forward to that one shot. Um, (laughs) Bitch Planet triple feature number four. Really excited about this book. Uh, It's not the regular series, and I'm okay with that. I've really enjoyed what... Kelly, Kelly Sue and Valentine Delandro have managed to put together. I don't know who's in charge of assembling all of these artists and writers and everything to make these little mini stories and these issues, but holy shit, it is it is like immersing my brain. It makes me want to go back and reread um, all of the actual Bitch Planet issues for the main storyline um, just to feel like I understand the rest of the world now. Bring me into this one like personal storyline that's happening in the story and they're kicking so much ass with these little one shots i i cannot express how cool it is to see them flesh out the story the way they're doing this it's it's kind of like what they're doing with lazarus plus 66 um over Mm -hmm. on the lazarus Mm -hmm. title um just to add more value i mean greg rucka was already adding a ton of value to his book in the back matter but um and bitch planet was doing the same in in ways of having commentary uh, in the form of essays in response to the individual issues. Um, but like I, these, this book is so enriching and I cannot stress enough how important I think the book is. And these triple feature issues are doing just as much work as the main story narrative. So hell yeah, bitch planet triple feature. I love this series. I'm digging it so much. Don't forget Rucka loves that shit so much. He even put out two one shots that are strictly lore. Right, right. I'm waiting for my two? Bitch Planet Bible to come in the mail, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, their their fan base is so patient. It's amazing how patient they are with the fact that this is a book that has put out, what, like, ten issues in, like, three years or something? Something like that, yeah. Um, oh, Bitch Planet. Oh, sorry, Tia, go ahead. No, uh, oh, um, I got a Lazarus Challenge coin at Ro- Rose City Comic Con. Oh, okay. So watch out. I'm gonna use it at cons now to get free oh, drinks. <laughs> She is so cool, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're no Mike Rapp, an art historian, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm a disgraced art historian. Mike's the real oh, deal. Well, Mike's the Mike's the new the new wave. <laughs> <laughs> Our show this week is all about our favorite inkers, colorists, editors, designers, so on and so forth. The people in comics that you probably don't hear about or read too much about unless you're, you know, really looking for that kind of information. And so we're going to spend today's episode not necessarily listing a bunch of names, but talking about the bigger idea of the unsung heroes of comics. Um, We've got a bunch of notes here and stuff like that, so let's just kick things off. Tia, do you want to start the discussion about, you said also editors in big gaps in our notes, uh, but uh, what's the bigger discussion here, I guess, in terms of the unsung heroes of comics? Yeah, you know, it really, this, this way of thinking where the writer and then to a lesser extent, maybe the artist, if they're, you know, a creator-owned book or something, the idea that they are the sort of main attraction and everyone else is supporting cast, this really goes back to antiquity. Like, it's very, very entrenched in Western thinking about art. And it uh, so artists in, in antiquity were basically considered no different than carpenters or, you know, anyone else who worked with their hands. 
there wasn't really any idea of of a creator or an author in the way that that we necessarily think of it. And art was basically labor. And so in the Renaissance, you know, if you, you when you start getting into who I call the Ninja Turtle artists, uh, yeah, they, you know, so the Renaissance itself was this time when humanities were really flourishing, and the idea that individualism was was a thing that that mattered, and this led to the idea that a creator was someone, and that art could be tied to that. And so it was like sort of the perfect storm for this really fundamental shift in the way you think about artists. You know, so artists were like, look, we're engaging with these really high-minded ideas where we have to know history, we have to know religion, we have to know Latin, we have to, you know, we're we're engaging with elite ideas and we're also engaging with elite people because they're our patrons and they really, they really wanted to elevate their status. So they worked really hard to sort of recast their role in society as people who were using their minds and who were not just using physical labor to make art. And so they be kind of they become creators. The artist becomes genius. The artist becomes the author, and mm-hmm. that helped them kind of permeate the boundary, and eventually become a little more recognized. But they had to do it by basically saying, "No, no, it's not our, it's not the work we do with our hands that is that has value. It's this intellectual work that we're doing." And you know, so you'd have these workshops where apprentices would do a lot of the like manual labor part of making the art I mean even now you have that with like you know name a flatter you know what I mean it's like that's kind of how it was and so the problem with that is the the idea that the the intellectual part of art making was the important thing just became really overinflated as a concept uh you know and so now we're left with kind of this vague awareness of the idea somehow being more important than the execution and that we have to parse those things out and separate them in order to really look at and understand art mm-hmm. and and because art criticism you know Vasari and all these guys in the renaissance uh and then you know art criticism just built on that it never really went away so now we think that the artists are the geniuses and everyone else just kind of makes their creations happen. And that's really not true and that's really not fair. And yeah, you know, here we are. So when we're thinking... Mike, is that your professional opinion too? I mean, or, as I mean, someone... <laughs> give you a chance to weigh. As someone who visited the Louvre. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... I think that's actually, that's great, because um, when you think about a comic book, it is definitely not just writer-penciler, right? And that's usually who we tie a lot of books to. We usually say, oh, look, it's Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin, right? And it's, mm-hmm. maybe that's not the best example, because Marcos Martin also does some coloring and some inking, but well, nonetheless, it's, it's not even the, the movies, stands. it's like director and actor. Exactly, you know? Those yeah. are the two that's things that sell. And then it's like, totally. well, who's the director of photography, and who's in charge of your special effects? And Right. Yeah. And as we, you know, I think in as you get more into that medium, you get more into the comics medium, these quote-unquote unsung, less-noticed um, roles, such as inkers, letterers, colorists, flatters, designers... You know, these names start to become things that you recognize. You go, oh, well, look at the way that, you know, Inker X inked over, you know, Penciler Y versus how Inker Z inked over 
penciler Y. That was a really hard mm-hmm. sentence for me to form yeah. in my head. Um, you know, you and must my math problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I talked about this kind of on the you know the old man Logan episode that we did about Dexter Vines inks over Steve McNiven's pencils. I think it's significant in terms of difference compared to anyone else that has inked over Steve McNiven's pencils, and that type of thing is very very important you look at why todd mcfarlane was such an important person in comics in the 90s not only for his pencils but because the guy is a stellar inker like if you look at his pencils with someone else's inks it's a it's a day and night difference um compared to when he inked his own stuff so when you're thinking about you know like what makes this book really good like to to hark back to what nick was saying about uh uh, Chu earlier, you know, Chu is a very interesting book. Rob Gilroy does a fantastic job on, he does all of the art, if I'm not mistaken, for that book. But the one thing that he does not mm-hmm. do is the lettering. And John Lehman, who's also the writer of that book, does a spectacular job with the letters in that book. He he knows how to make the comedic flow work in terms of just how the page is laid out with the thought bubbles and the captions and even just the the fonts and crazy weird lettering bubbles that they use to emphasize different points of speech. I know I've talked about this on the show before, but I really cannot stress it enough how important that aspect of the book is when you're actually reading it. And it's something that I think people, you know, we really undervalue when you're not in the middle of the shit like we are you know and, and that's why an episode like this exists because these types of this work really adds value to the book without these inkers and letterers and colorists and designers these books would be really flat and boring that's really interesting i never thought of how if you have your writer do the lettering and it really allows a more deft control over comedic pacing that's interesting yeah um i would argue that inkers are what give depth and movement to the art, mm-hmm. you know, totally, like, totally. If, like notice the the way that the lines connect to each other. Notice the thickness of the lines. Notice the way that shadows are made with inks and and things like that. And you know, we think of pencilers as the artist because they come up with it out of their brains, right? You know. or the the writer tells them what to come up with out of their brains if you're like doing that but like you know the inker has to figure out how to take these pencils and and outline them in a way that still makes them feel three-dimensional or give you know or or actionable depth and texture yeah 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 there there was (laughs) i'm gonna bring up my kevin smith thing here if only because i love this we're talking about inking um there's a scene in the movie chasing amy um, and this is not a commentary on Chase and Amy because that movie is kind of weird in a lot of places. But ultimately, there is some fun commentary in comics or about comic books in that book. And very there's inside a scene, baseball commentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very inside baseball. But the, there's a moment in the in the movie where a guy comes up to get his comic book signed, um, and Br- Brody is the character I believe in the book, or in I'm sorry, in the movie, and he's the inker on the book. And the guy goes, "Oh, what did you do?" He's like, "Well, I did the inking, I did some of the coloring, but he's the, and he points to Ben Affleck's character. He's the guy." that did all of the uh, penciling them. So if you want to get the artist to sign it, you know, make sure to get him too. He's like, oh, wait, so you're... So the guy who's at the table says, so you're just the guy who does all the tracing? Like, that's what you do as the inker? He draws the actual art and you just trace it? And so they get in this big heated argument and it becomes a reoccurring joke throughout the movie. But the idea that an inker is just a tracer is is very funny to me and has always been funny to me because I never really thought about inking as 
being that. I always understood it to be shadows and adding, like we were saying, depth. Because if you look at the difference between a page with just pencils and you look at that page with inks, it's literally day and night because of how much actual extra work the inker has to do to figure out everything. They have to interpret the scene. Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? They're the person that determines how the light works. And then the colorist has to go on top of that, interpret how the color works in terms of light. Um, and it is it is not a single person effort, to say the least, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is why you'll see a lot of pencilers who actually do their own inks because they want that control over how the page looks. And then a colorist will come in and, and fill in the color and do the rest of the work in terms of setting the actual tone of the page. And colorists have to be, I think, really sensitive uh, to inking because sometimes the colorist is the one who's adding the dimension and the texture and things like that. But if the inker's already done it, like you don't want to fight with what they've already done or I don't know, like you, you, all of this is to say that, that you can't just kind of have an assembly line where no one's talking to each other about what they're doing. And that's Mm why everyone is in, is involved in the creative process in a really important way. You can't just be like, oh yeah, well, the penciler and the writer and then everyone else just like, you know, filled it in. It's like not how it works. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting, um, just to, to talk about something more recent, um, I believe Wicked and Divine 31 had a page that was ball in the panel by himself, it's just like a bust shot or a headshot of him. Um, and I remember Kieran Gillen or Jamie McKelvey tweeted the inks just for that page and then the colors later. And to see how much work went into that page that was just inks and to see how the color changed that was astounding. Like the, the page is heavy like black colored from the ink. But then you add just a small layer of color on top of that and it's it's a stark beautiful image of this man saying something i won't spoil the book um but uh yeah it's a fantastic example of how important going from pencils to inks to colors is on a page like that so if you haven't seen that look up wicked and divine 30 you know issue 31 and then go find those tweets from kieran gillen and jamie mckelvey it's fantastic stuff I'm so pumped that they're re-releasing Vision in the director's cut. Um, like they're collecting like a couple of issues for each one and putting yeah. all the process stuff in the back because, you know, you get to just see from you know from script to page, you know how it gets there, and it's truly so lovely and so interesting. Yeah, if you need some behind-the-scenes DVD commentary, that's. Or Blu-ray commentary, I guess, is what we should be saying. Comics commentary. Uh, we don't. <laughs> yeah. We don't need that medium. We have our own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. Let me let me ask the question that I think may be going through a lot of people's minds. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, Tia, like someone who's a flatter on a book, and I've heard this term being thrown around a lot. I actually don't know what a flatter is when it comes to a comic book. Could you give us like yeah. a brief overview of that? So, I actually didn't know really myself, and um, I was talking to some people about it at Rose City Comic Con last weekend and they were explaining to me that it's like they basically just so if you looked at for example um some artists like Russell Dodderman they when they draw hair they like they go to town on like every strand right is drawn and yeah. so let's say you have um Thor standing in front of some 
something going on in the background and his hair is like being whipped around in the wind you know so like it's not his hair isn't going to be just like a mask there's going to be like strands and there's gonna be like stuff behind them and like what's sky and what's a person and what's a rock and what's Mm -hmm. you know and so a flatter will go in and they'll be like okay here's all the hair and here this is all sky and this is all this and this is all that and it's not the color that's going to end up being that color but it just like saves the colorist from having to actually go in and figure out what Mm -hmm. is what Gotcha. I, that's, that's sort of, yeah. yeah. You know, so Set the basic tones. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So they just kind of separate out like what, what is pr- probably going to be what color, like what it, mm-hmm. separating this out from that, that it, when things are over, you know, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these artists get really, really complicated in their drawing and that's mm-hmm. why we love them. And that's it also makes spectacular colorists, um, you know, shine. But yeah, like it just if colorists work on a lot of books in a month and they just, you know, they sometimes don't have the time to like go back and forth with an editor or a writer or a, an artist and be like, Oh wait, actually that strand's supposed to be sky. Oh wait, actually that strand's supposed to be this, you know, it's just, yeah. Jeez. Oh, okay. This is totally news to me. And I'm just trying to imagine being that person. And that, that sounds stressful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. And you can't appreciate the work that a person does if you don't know what the word means even. And right. and I don't right. I don't think that there's ever really been a good medium to So you I have had my rants about comics journalism, right? Yeah. And yeah. um comics journalism in my opinion is one of its one of its mandates is to help people know what they're looking at and help people understand how how it came to be right like right. i really wish that we saw more discussion of these unsung heroes as we're calling them mm-hmm. when when people are reviewing or critiquing books because that's that like that is the way people are going to know and appreciate these things mm-hmm. yeah and i think the struggle is that for people like us who want to discuss these things and, and shine a light on them, uh, frequently, at least I feel, that I, I don't have the resources or I don't have the ability frequently to responsibly say, you know, this was this was a good job of pencils or this this was a great inking job or, or this was a, you know, it's, it's difficult frequently to know that you're responsibly... Um, attributing success to the right person. So um, there was the um, a thing that Kieran Gillen tweeted recently about this, where he was talking about an old phonogram review where they mistakenly believed it was made by someone named Gillen McKelvey. And so Ooh. they did the entire review Jesus. based on the premise that it was made by one person and that it was actually really interesting <laughs> because oh, sure. you can't, you know, with with a really close collaborative team, you actually can't know what one thing was done by one person. And in a way, it was a more honest way to look at things, um, mm. you know, so so it's. I think that there's a way to to say like, oh, wow, this is a really intricate page. The flatter must have done, you know, some really hard work here. And you'd, or like the flatting is really good without necessarily, like without necessarily saying who did it. You know, does that make sense? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky. There was, there was a quote in this um Jack Kirby book I was recently reading and it was sort of about the the plight of inkers because when when the inker these days when the inker does a great job frequently people just go oh the pencils are good 
and when the inker oh, does yeah. a bad job then the penciler gets thrown under the bus and people go oh man these pencils are terrible uh and so we don't always get that separation to say who did what but if, if you're getting at more of looking at it as a collective finished product and saying you know you know this was a as a, as a group this was a great job I, I think on some degree that's maybe easier to pronounce and True. Still honest in some in some fashion, obviously. On the other hand, um, you also like that only works if everyone is getting credited prominently. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. How many books don't have flatter credits? Right. Most. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm getting at. I I didn't really realize that how how many books actually use flatters until I read the letter column or I read the you know writer notes online or I read you know something like a tweet from somebody saying oh well we had a really good flatter that way it made my job a lot easier as the colorist. Here's a hint if you know any unusually prolific colorists (laughs) there's usually a flatter. (laughs) Yeah (laughs) Yeah, I mean I think that you can't praise a book's collaborative effort if you're only naming the penciler and the writer right totally and i think true. that's just yeah. because the modern look at comic books and I, I shouldn't say modern it's been going on forever is that the inker and the letterer uh for a lot of people um that's they're just there you know that's oh those are the letters and that's the ink and it's not seen as something that can have a creative capacity it's more of a utilitarian they're sort the laborers. of like, Exactly, yeah. like someone yeah. has to do this, right. and someone will do it, and it's it's grunt work, it's leg work. That's how it's seen, uh, which which is so unfair. Um, I mean, that's it was purposefully sort of defined that way in the Renaissance in order for artists to elevate their status. Yeah, you know, and and the idea would be that you wouldn't that that everyone wanted to be the artist, and then eventually, like mm-hmm. the person who was, you know, like doing the I mean they had flatters in the renaissance too so like the flattery I mean truly everybody's had assistance yeah exactly yeah, so yeah. that goes on forever the idea know? would be that at some point you would graduate up but obviously that's just kind of a silly way of thinking until then right. someone else would take credit for your work <laughs> yeah <laughs> basically so um, it's interesting you know the, the word assistance is actually very interesting in terms of manga um, because in the back of a lot of manga books or uh, especially in like the collected volumes or Tankaban, like you'll see the creator of the book you know usually it's one maybe two people um, they, they'll be the people that are like associated with the book um, but those assistants will usually get credits or they'll get like special thank you pages in the backs of those mm. um, volumes to say like you know these are all the people that helped on this book it's not just you know me or me and this other you know these two people um, there's usually like four or five or even six assistants who are working on backgrounds and fills and all this different stuff um, and the assistant system I think in in Japan in terms of manga is a in order to break into the industry you usually start as an assistant and then you move up and that's like an understood flow but i think in i do western, believe drake covered this in a song like <laughs> yeah yeah uh and I, I but i think uh in western comics that flow of how you grow in the comics industry isn't nearly as clean cut so it's not so much of a pay your dues thing yeah 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 like you can break in immediately as a penciler or you can maybe start Mm -hmm. as a colorist or start as an Mm -hmm. inker or so on and so forth um and i think uh 
getting to a point that I have here in the notes about, you know, you see some people like Jordi Belair, for instance, I think she's our golden child example of how things work. And she may be one in a million, but she is the example that we have at least um, where, you know, she's been a colorist for years. And, you know, everyone, I think on this show has praised her work immensely. Um, and now to see her move from colorist to writer position is very interesting because those aren't a directly related field. But I think a mm-hmm. colorist understanding of a narrative and understanding of scene and understanding of how like a story should be told in terms of visuals is very very important so to see her move from colorist to writer maybe isn't that hard of a leap like or that big of a jump but um it's something that was very interesting to see you know she quote unquote put in her dues and now she's writing a comic i think it's really interesting to see her grow like that as a creator um but i also feel like that way of thinking really reinforces the problem uh, you know, like colorists, it's not just that they're doing important work that needs to be done. Like it's a contribution, mm-hmm. it's an artistic and creative contribution in its own right. And everyone has to be viewed as a storyteller effect. You know, yeah, on some yeah. Level. Like I just, I don't want to be like, oh, one day you could be a writer too. It's like, I, <laughs> yeah, I actually yeah. think that that probably like a a really good way of of phrasing this maybe is that her experience as a colorist and as such mm-hmm. a prolific and creative colorist is going to make her writing really interesting because she has this other perspective that people who are writers but have never been colorists, you know, yeah. probably won't yeah. have. Yeah, that, that's, it, it, that it, is it, absolutely go true. Go ahead, Mike, yeah. Sorry, it, not it to put used to shock me. No, no, no. You, you, <laughs> you, you phrase what I was trying to say much better than what I said. <laughs> It, it used to shock me when you would see people sort of hop between um, different roles in comic books, and uh, at least on some level, I felt that maybe <laughs> uh, skills didn't translate, but over time, as I've gotten um, older and, and maybe ever so slightly wiser, I think you just sort of see that um, just spending time in comics, period, um, just sort of helps inform you on all these different things, and you're like I said, you're just you're you're contributing to the narrative already in some capacity, and now you're just changing it up. Um, I do want to say that doesn't always work. That doesn't always uh, translate. Um, I, I hate to rag on him, but I, I don't like his stuff. So uh, Tony S. Daniel was a very prolific, is a very prolific penciler, still is, um, and and I guess some people like his work, but he's hopped over to writing and I, you know, not not everybody can be Jordi Belair, I guess. I guess that's a no-brainer. <laughs> we should all aspire to be Jordi Belair, yeah, I think. Not we, really um, we can, but but, um, but really but that doesn't always work. And yeah, you I think you bring up a good point, Nick, like um I'm not yeah, again, we're we're not trying to rag but and yet here we are. Um but like you think of Image Comics, like the foundation of Image Comics was a bunch of artists um, yeah, oh, saying, perfect. Like, yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah. Saying that, mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, we can we can make these comics ourselves. We want to own our properties and so on and so forth. And, so, you know, they started this company. And, you know, a lot of the books that came out of it, some of them were duds. A lot of them were duds at the beginning. I mean, Image as it is now is, you know, one of the, the bigger names in comics. Um, they, Visually strong duds, but yes. Yeah, but I think that the point was, you know, 
these artists, they were mostly pencilers, inkers. Um, they decided, let's make our own comics. Let's write and draw them. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't work. But ultimately, Image survived because they did find out, like, what could actually sell. And you saw books like Spawn um, being written and drawn by Todd McFarlane to start. And then eventually, you know, McFarlane moved just over to penciling and inking. And, you know, Neil Gaiman came in and started writing. And then we, we saw that happen with a couple of other different books. Different creators jumped on to say, hey, I want to create these, you know, create our own books um, on, a, on a label that had, or I should say, a publisher that has a lot of clout because of all of the big names that moved and started over at this company. Um, and it's, I mean, not to say that, you know, it's impossible to move from, you know, artist or from penciler, inkler or colorist or whatever to writer, but um, to just add some some value to what Nick was saying. It doesn't always work, but if you look at mm-hmm. Christina Strain, who's writing Generation X, it totally fucking works because she used to just be a colorist, and holy shit, Generation X is amazing. I can't say that enough. Uh, she's my other example. <laughs> There's a really interesting trend that also exists in, in art history that I notice in comics, which is that a lot of times the artist's wife will take on some of these unsung hero roles. They'll do the flaps, yeah. they'll do the colors, oh, yeah. they'll edit, they'll Matt Kent's help wife, design. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, and it's hard to say whether or not, you know, it happens because they're just there and it's convenient or maybe they have a genuine interest and that's why, you know, I I mean, this is mm-hmm. a book that, you, that would someone should write. But And, <laughs> yeah, and they yeah, have, yeah, yeah. on the art history side, it's definitely been written many times but like you know um the perception of these roles as being not the intellectual work and therefore not the um you know not the star not the, not mass- the one worthy of praise right, yeah, yeah like yeah, right so you're sort, sort of like yeah yeah whatever you do that you know and it's less there, there's it seems like there's less that you're igor and not dr frankenstein yeah um you know people can really like seize that opportunity and turn it into something for themselves. Yeah. But um, I think that part of the reason why it's, we've been able to historically devalue some of these roles is because they've traditionally kind of been like, you know, the, the woman's work of comics, if, like historically, a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of, um, colorists were women. Yeah. 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 That's, oh, that's something I never considered. Cause when I think about like, dynamic duos in comics right i think like matt kent and charlene kent like on on department h right now i don't think the that, dodsons yeah like yeah exactly mike allred and laura all the eminence yeah the eminence yeah i mean we could i think we could sit here and name a handful of pairs and but it's when you think about it now in terms of like i would love you know i think i think any any of the, those those pairs could break apart and both of the books created by those people would be equally good if you know yeah i, I think that mike they, rappin advocating for divorce <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you sick fuck yeah 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 stay together for the comics right that's yeah <laughs> nice, uh, nice nice yeah. nice nice well just because you aren't working together doesn't mean you have to get divorced jeez nick yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean look at fraction and kelly sue have they, have they ever even worked together they just yeah they're just like a power couple but they don't work on each other's books yeah it's probably yeah. deliberate yeah. it's probably intentional <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, That's I true. think yeah, the, and um, I, I think that there's 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 even there's always more to be said about this. I think like, I mean, we're I, I want to wrap up because we've been we've been harping and talking for for a million years, and we'll probably do a part three of this. I think now it's what's going to be a regular trend every year. Um, but I guess the 
the, what what do you guys think is going to be the next like on this on the rise thing to notice in terms of comics? Do you think flatters are going to like sure. you know come to prominence? Are letters going to be the new thing? Yeah, yeah like it's going to be letterers. <laughs> really, I think it's letterers. Yeah. yeah. I think part of the problem, I shouldn't say problem, part of the natural evolution of comics arriving where they are is that people have discovered that keeping creative teams intact is a smart thing to do, you know, no duh. Right. Um, if you look at, like, Jeff Lemire, Andrea Sorrentino on pencils, Marcelo Mayolo on colors, those three guys follow each other around like crazy. Mm-hmm. And if you look at certain writers and pencilers, they usually tend to use the same colorist a lot of the time. Why? Totally. Because they have a relationship, they have a rapport. And this isn't a problem, but it still is a little bit of an issue uh, for someone who wants to sort of analyze or evaluate um, a penciler, you know, by themselves or or an inker in terms of their contributions. Like Greg, Greg Capullo has had Danny Miki forever inking him all the way back to Spawn. And because of that, um, as much as you'd love to sort of uh, evaluate Danny Miki in terms of his like inking ability or say, you know, oh, I think he really brings something great to this book because he so rarely ever works with other people. It's hard to sort of be like, okay, this is what he does when it's this penciler. This is what he does when it's that penciler. Um, which is interesting because he just, um, inked the forge and the casting for DC. And both of those issues had John Romita Jr., uh, Adam Kubert, and Jim Lee's pencils within each issue, and he inked all three of them, and he brought out the best for each one. And I thought that was it was it was a fantastic like display of talent. But you don't frequently get to see something like that because these teams stick together forever. So you right. can't say, okay, you know, this guy it doesn't matter what penciler he's on, like he's he's got it. You know what I mean? And that's such a nitpicky thing. But um, sometimes I wish that there was more of that to see yeah i don't know yeah i get what you're i get it's it's a it's a hard thing to separate like are you gonna imagine frank miller's art without klaus jansen like that's that's a tough team to break up Mm -hmm. um i think that also i think that having these teams is part of what is making this trend that i've noticed happen but and then it's trickling out but like social media on social media colorists have started to get real loud about like hey guys you know a lot of what you think is great about art is us. So like, mm-hmm. please credit us accordingly. And especially the art or the colorists who are part of these like really well-known creative teams, like it means something if some really prominent writer is is also saying like, hey, you need to notice my colorists because they're fucking awesome. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And and it, and then uh, I think that is was a really big part of what made colorists start to have a little more visibility and i think i've noticed that now happening with letterers mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i think yeah the the argument for letterers is like hey you want to know why this book is fucking legible it's because of me <laughs> like <laughs> uh, that'll great be graphic big. designers that's i guess i should say that's that's the thing that i'm like totally behind these days uh is like great graphic designs for like the the, the, the pages at the beginning where you have a primer of all the different characters, like Valiant does this little thing where they have these like intro pages with a breakdown of all of the, you know, dramatis personae and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And and I love that stuff. And I think um, like that's for me what I think is going to really be on the up and up in recent years. Or if you ever read uh, Snowfall, Tom Mueller does the graphic design for yeah. that book. And for me, that was the best part of that book, where all of the weird, like, geometric, like, neon snowflakes and all these different 
designs and um, just the real professionalism of, of comic books that seems to be improving these days, especially with like non-big two books where you don't have to sit through all these Snickers ads in the middle of your book. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I was the other person for in terms of design I was going to mention was uh, Jonathan Hickman. If you look at all of his books, oh yeah, like all of good, it, like Ryan everything Hughes is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That I mean, I I could also see that being big. So I I really would like to see like more dynamic, interesting lettering, but that's. That's a that's a discussion for another day. So let's uh, let's wrap up here. Let's let's do some credits and stuff. I you know I want to thank the both of you for being on the show. You can follow us all on Twitter. Uh, Nick, you can. Where can we find you guys on the internet? So I'm uh, on Twitter at Death Star Plans. I know the spelling's weird. That's D E T H S T A R P L N Z. Um, it is a private account, as Mike would want to point out, but mm-hmm. if you friend me and you friend the show, and I know that you're not some crazed fan, um, as if I'll ever have one of those, <laughs> I uh, just say <laughs> I'll follow you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tia, what about you? Nick, that's a lot of work. I'm not going to do any of that. Okay, problem solved. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Portrait of Madam X. Madam is spelled M-M-E. It's the French uh, abbreviation, which Mike can tell you all about. because he's As someone who went to the yeah. Louvre. Yeah. <laughs> Let's let the pro handle this, Tia. Jesus. Uh, yeah, so at Portrait of M-M-E-X. And uh, my account is pretty open. You can even DM me. I yeah, unless you're a dick, and then I'll block you. But you know, be nice. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Rappin. Uh, you can also follow me on Medium, where I haven't posted an article about the X Men in two weeks because I was on holiday. Were you in as, France? I heard you were in I, France. Uh, I was. Uh, I heard you went to the at Louvre. the Louvre. I went to the Louvre. <laughs> um, <laughs> We Probably never heard of it. <laughs> you can also uh, follow the show on Twitter at IRCB Podcast, uh, where we retweet stuff and post things at three in the morning when I'm in bed trying to go to sleep. And we post surveys on Fridays, such as the one I posted last week from France, which with the question of who is the Frenchest. I'm very proud of that one. Uh, Gambit won, by the way. I don't oh. know how. I was it makes gonna, no sense. I know. I was going to say, did you win? No, I, I should have. I should have put myself on there. Uh, you can... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That, we'll see what the poll this week's going to be. It's got to be something fun. In addition to following us on Twitter and following IRCB Podcast on Twitter, you can also follow us over at Goodreads. Uh, we have a group. We do polls um, for our book of the month, and uh, there's one of those. We also have threads. You can talk about um, this week's episode, old episodes. Uh, you can talk about what you're reading. You can talk about what you think about the book of the month. There's plenty of places to display your opinions, which it's the internet, so I'm sure you have some. It's a great place for those. Uh, you can also go and visit us at ircbpodcast.com. That's our website. And uh, if you want to listen to episodes, they're there. If you want to read our weekly pull list documents where we talk about the books we've got coming out this week and what we think about them, they're there too. It's a just genuinely great repository of, of information uh, in other $5 words. Please rate the show, subscribe, tell your friends. Our show is love. You love your friends. Show your friends love by telling them about our show. Uh, <laughs> You can also email the show at uh, ircb at destroythesibe.org. Please reach out. We love talking to you. You can email us about comic books. You can email us about love, life, anything you want. Oh, that's... I have to answer those emails. Mike Rappin's new... 
new obsession. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe, and they also do the music for the show. We love them beyond belief. Um, Xander is the star you follow when you're lost in the desert, and you think that there's no hope, but he's there for you. Um, he also edits the show. Uh, so thank you everyone for listening <laughs> thank you as always for subscribing and telling us you know how much you love comic books and sending us random stuff on the internet that's always really fun um, we've got a lot of really exciting things coming up now that I'm back I'm like at 110% kicking whole bunches of butts for this show so I'm really excited for what we've got planned for the rest of the year I hope you're excited we've got some really super duper exciting news coming I think maybe next week so keep an eye or an ear out for that preferably not both um, so from everyone here at the show thank you so much um, we will check you next week god. oh my god all right we're done sorry we're done. Mike, you and the lube is something i can't shake it's just it's <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> i mean like that's a really big fucking building. I like didn't know what to do with myself. There was so much. It stuff sounds to like see. it. <laughs> uh, okay, we. I I marked the time. So if you guys want to take a break, we can. I I yeah. need some more water for sure. All right. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. You can you can come back to me with a fucking five minute pitch about this Mike Rep and our historian book. I'm real real concerned about where the narrative is going to go. This book on speaks that. for itself. I think this is. You know, you, you write right, what I'm you know. Or in no, case, actually, you write I've got what it. You don't. I've got it ready. Every single panel will be Mike. And he's like wearing like a dorky uh, X-Men t-shirt underneath like a blazer with elbow patches. And he goes to the Louvre. And then so he stands in front of a painting. And then there's like the panel of him standing in front of the painting. And then the next panel, he steps backward and he strokes his beard. And he goes, hmm, that's very good. And then he yeah, walks away. Good. And then the, like <laughs> that's basically the exact same thing with like all the different art in Louvre for like every exactly. single strip. It's just repeat With like a different X-Men t-shirt every single one <laughs> like where's he doing these costume changes yeah, yeah. he's just like stripping it and then like in the back matter we could show like panels of him like stripping his shirt off in the gallery and putting a new one on for everyone oh my god and it turns out that this whole thing for mike is actually its own um act of performance art you know so it's, it's, <laughs> it's mike within the louvre doing his own actual performance so uh, so so who's the idiot now no and then at the very end the sarbonne gives him an honorary degree <gasps> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the, you guys are outlining my next trip to europe is <laughs> just like i'm back bitches and they're like mondu um <laughs> yeah i mean mondu <laughs> dr mike is here to look at Got your any art. of those palm frites oh my god yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, Mike Rappin does Europe. I think there's real potential there. <laughs> <laughs>